Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. If you're willing to do what others aren't, there can be gold in them hills. Today's guest, Arthur Drozd, has found incredible value with multifamily properties that have complex challenges. Arthur is highly skilled at finding opportunities and finding the right teams. Arthur is also the founder of ReadyLendGo.com, a one-stop website aggregator of commercial real estate loans. I am so excited to have this interview today, yet we have another guy who's so interesting with such an interesting background and is doing great things in real estate. You know, I've had to stop laughing uh, because of the jokes we were telling before. I just hit record, so it's going to be a fun interview as well. And so today's guy is a fellow Bay Area resident. He's up in the in the lofty high rent district of Marin County, one of the highest per capita net worth counties in the country. Way, way, way back in the day, it used to be number one, but it's it's been eclipsed a long time ago. But it's still way up there. This is the president of SDS Realty and ReadyLendingCo.com, Arthur. Drazd. Arthur, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hi, Roger. How are you? I'm wonderful. We had some good yucks. Well, listen, for for the sake of the audience, look, man, I know from your, uh, you know, your bio, obviously, you, you went to school in Moscow, radio and TV, which, by the way, is my background as well. You know, tell me, like, were you born in Moscow, another part of Russia? When did you come over? What's the cool story there? Uh, yeah. So uh, I was born in the suburb of Moscow, a little town that's uh, called Korolev. If you ever heard of uh, Korolev, the father of Russian cosmos space program. So the whole town was devoted to the space program. It's a town, I'd say 200,000 people. And uh, there were rocket factories and uh, the, the center of the space exploration was there. And... Um, Everything has got to do with uh, with rockets and rocket engines and space and that was in this little town. So I grew up in that town and my father was a rocket engineer. And my first job when I was 14 years old was at the rocket factory where we were assembling uh, SS-20 ballistic missiles. Uh, obviously, I didn't have a security clearance for that. So I was working in a little part of the plant that uh, was producing other stuff but uh, that's the town that's the town I grew up yeah so uh, I went to uh, Moscow State University and uh, tried studying journalism Uh, the problem with that turned out to be that during communism journalism in Russia (sighs) unfortunately proven to be a kind of a theme that they tell you what to say, and you're supposed to just follow the line. So journalism was not that exciting. And I very quickly realized that you can't improvise, you can't be yourself, you, there's no freedom of press. And uh, I was very disillusioned with that really quick. So when I came back from the military, from Soviet military, start working in, uh, in construction, still going to school in, in, in Russia. And then the uh, Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. And uh, right after that, I realized that it was time, time to go. I didn't want to learn anything in, uh, in a Moscow State University that was teaching me about communism. It was not the place you want to be if you want to learn uh, capitalism right after Soviet Union collapsing because it was still teaching 
socialist way of doing things in communism and communist history. And so I decided there was no place for me. So I left for Europe and I uh, lived in, uh, in Belgium for a little bit, did some expert business to uh, back to Russia. I met um, my wife there and we moved to California and uh, started in the car business in the early 90s here in California. So that's, uh, that's my start. Interesting. And so where's your wife from? Uh, she's from Bay Area. And so you got into the car business early 90s and I know that you're up in Marin now. Was this in Marin? Yeah. So yeah, my first job was at the Toyota store. I, for some reason, I thought, you know, I would be selling cars is the easiest thing, but uh, proven to be not that easy. But that was the only job that you can get without a degree and making money, a lot of money right away. So I kind of started, started there and uh, grew to be a sales manager and then a general sales manager and then fairly quickly uh, general manager of a store and then a partner and then uh, start doing some deals overseas for automotive assets opening automotive assets in far east of russia vladivostok sakhalin magadan so as a nissan product nissan stores because uh, far east of russia didn't have any dealerships at the time so that was uh it was a great time to jump on that i was exporting a lot of cars from bay area to to russia at the time so and that's how it morphed into you know becoming a car dealer there and then uh still getting into real estate in 2009 that was my transformation from car business to to real estate and then in 2009 uh, i realized that probably real estate we couldn't touch at the time because if you remember all the prices were still always crazy you couldn't buy anything if you wanted to get really into the commercial or multifamily business and um in 2008 if you remember there was a great recession and prices were starting to come down on a, in a lot of areas especially in east bay if you remember so i bought a lot of stuff in uh, in vallejo vallejo was going through the, the bankruptcy at the time as city of vallejo and uh, nobody wanted to buy anything there and the banks had a lot of a lot of properties that were boarded up and just the whole town was going down the drain but i at the time uh, i i was thinking how bad can it get and there were a lot of people were telling me yeah i could get really bad they could get uh, uh it could get horrible like richmond uh the city of richmond remember was a capital of uh, for a long time uh which is next to Vallejo, was a cap- murder capital of the United States for a long time. But, um, and Vallejo was going on that trajectory because they cut police. I remember the first, uh, the first real estate deal I did there, I bought a house from the bank and we were remodeling it. And the next day we come there with my uh, partner at the time and uh, it was graffiti and somebody broken in and, and it was just a mayhem. So I see a police car on the corner at, by 7-Eleven parked there and I go there and I approach the car and I see a civilian sitting on the passenger side, right? And uh, I asked him like, guys, you know, somebody broke into the house we we're remodeling. And the policeman tells me, you see this guy, civilian is sitting next to me. He's a volunteer. <laughs> so we're here because somebody got murdered here last night at the parking lot on 7-Eleven. So that's a much bigger problem that you're having. Yeah, full. <laughs> so, so it was the it was crazy times at the time to buy in Vallejo. 
to go back for a quick second, are your, you know, and I'm just interested in history and, and I was curious to know if you were in, I'm going to go all the way back to Russia in 91 and, and indeed you were very interesting times. Putin now is trying to roll all that back and, you know, he's trying to, we'll see if he attacks Ukraine, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's a whole, that's another podcast. But here's my question. You said your dad worked, was a rocket engineer. Did your family ended up, end up coming to the States or are they still there? No, they're all still there. Wow. My parents and my sister and, and my whole family uh, is still there. And then just to clarify something, when you said you became a partner in a, I think you said in a dealership, I'm trying to parse that out. Did you own a dealership in like Vladivostok or somewhere? Uh, I was a, yeah, I was a partner in a, in a Nissan store that we built. Uh, we built a 6,000 square meter uh, of flagman, Far Eastern flagman for Nissan in Vladivostok flagman store it's a it's it's a it was a huge store so there were satellite stores that we opened from there it was in Sakhalin uh it's an island off uh off the coast of Russia you know next to Japan and then there's a, a city called Magadan as a gold capital of, of in Russia uh, in Far East and uh, yeah so I did uh, a lot of car business in the Far East for uh, quite a few years so how does that work? And we, we don't need to go down a rabbit hole on it, but I was just wondering, how does that work with communism? Or were they transitioning? Or No, we're talking about 2000, 2009 at the time, 2000, 2008, 2009. So at the time, there was a, already a wild west, wild east, let's call it, <laughs> in there. So it's, uh, it was an open market, but they didn't have any stores at the time that were dealerships that were built specifically to be car dealers. I see. Do you still have a uh, interest in them, or no? I I got out of that a um, few years later because uh, there was a lot more I could do in real estate here, and realized I could I could spend a lot a lot more time here, and uh, it's it pr- proven to be a, a better strategy. You're an entrepreneurial guy, man. I you know that's why I love doing this podcast. You never know. You know, it's like opening up a box of candies. You never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Um, you've got a really interesting story. So in Vallejo, and uh, yours truly here, I looked at units in Vallejo a long time ago. I didn't pull the trigger, but whatever. So you said you started with a house. Did you end up doing apartments? Like what kind of scale did it ultimately wind yeah. up being? Yeah, so we we'll, would we'll buy this stuff, like one or two houses, remodel them, resell them, and uh, put the profits back into more units and then buy more houses. So uh, for about a couple of years, we were just buying and flipping houses there. But after a while, I realized that it would probably be worth it to, if since we're buying them so cheap, to uh, remodel them and just rent them almost to the same people who were living in there before. And then... Uh, move on to a next deal and keep them for a while as a as a multifamily income deals and so i I started doing more of those and I kept a lot of those uh, multifamily buildings duplexes fourplexes and then seven unit buildings stuff like that and I didn't flip any of those and just kept them and uh, until until the web 2.0 explosion in uh, Bay Area, if you remember, uh, Facebook went public. And so that was, I think, the catalyst for, uh, for a lot of things. And uh, yeah, rising tide gets all the boats floating up, right? So, <laughs> so 
this was one of those situations when uh, the rent and beer started exploding after a lot of tech companies uh, went public and there's a lot of a lot of people start coming in bay area and that's what around 2011 2012 and then the rents went crazy and with it uh east bay rents started going crazy so at the time i couldn't buy anything in vallejo anymore that made any sense so i started going to different markets and so did you say you had a partner in this i had a partner at the time um yes uh, we you know we'd done a lot of car business together a lot of automotive um, assets and a lot of export to russia together but uh, he stayed in the car business. He's a, he's a car dealer now in, in Marin, a partner in the car dealership in Marin County. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305 467 5909. You'll be glad you did. And so 2011, 12, companies start going, you know, public rents start going up. You couldn't buy in Vallejo anymore. So you started buying other places. And what are those other places? And was it multifamily? And yeah, it's all, it's all multifamily uh, because I figured that I did so well with the multifamily in Vallejo. At the time, you could buy it from the banks at the price of the um, permit fees. Um, like, for example, if you go right now and, and you say, I want to build or convert a building, they'll calculate it will cost you $55,000 in just fees, you know, at the building department there. And they will tell you just, just to start before you even do anything, before you even buy land or before you even buy an old building that you want to convert. It's $55,000 per door. And uh, if you're buying a, a whole a duplex for fifty thousand to sixty thousand dollars, right? Already two units with land and infrastructure and everything is boarded up. It's yeah. But uh, if you put you know if you put tenants in there, remodel it, and uh, it, then as you're basically buying the property for the price of uh, for the price of uh, fees permits. So <laughs> it was no brainer to me. And then um, yeah. I couldn't, after a few years, once once rent started going up, I couldn't buy that anymore because everybody realized that uh, East Bay was a hot place to do that and Vallejo was one of them. So I, I thought, what would be the next market people are going to start moving because they can't afford Bay Area? And I started uh, looking and it was Sacramento for me, logically. So I bought a few buildings, multifamily buildings there. And um, I stayed with multifamily since then and then... In Sacramento, after a while, I realized that after a couple of years, I couldn't buy anything that made any sense. And I thought, what would be the next place people are going to go? And the next place I thought would be, logically, would be Nevada. So I started looking in, uh, in uh, Las Vegas. So I bought four buildings in, in Las Vegas uh, since. And then uh, after that, Las Vegas, you cannot touch right now. So, right? so in the last couple of years, it's... Uh, it was uh, now it's selling at like four cap. So after Las Vegas, logically, I started looking Midwest, and so 
Oklahoma was the next step, and then Indiana uh, turned out to be a next step for me. So I bought, I did seven deals this year, three in Indiana and uh, four in, uh, in Oklahoma for a total of about 212 units in between all seven. Very interesting. You try to kind of like stay ahead of the value chain is kind of what I'm hearing, which is just common sense, smart. Well, Roger, so here's the thing. Um, it's uh, it's not just staying ahead of, of value chain. It's staying ahead of where, where the market is going to go next. And there's a lot of uh, components to this. You, know, you have to look at what is the next thing that will affect the market because a lot of times it's not only demographics. Like look at California right now. We've got fires, as a result, we have as a result of a drought mainly, right? And they, now it's called the fire season, right? So it's like uh, they used to call uh, monsoon is a monsoon season, right? Like a rain season, right? So now we coin a phrase that's called a, a fire season. So it's never we, we never used this before in California, but now every three months out of a year we have fires. So now you have to rethink your strategy. Where where do you want to be? And it's environmental question is number is to me is number one. The number two is um, where is the government on the position to landlords? Is it a landlord friendly state? Because California is not. Uh, politics in California changing very rapidly. So rent control and um, and a lot of a lot of problems that uh, that the state is having right now is being put on the shoulders of of landlords and and developers instead of rethinking this whole idea. And um, inequality is another problem, which is the biggest problem I think in uh, metropolitan areas in California. That is going to uh, create large large problems. So I'm looking in my research, I'm looking at states not only where demographics is growing, and that's why Nevada, Oklahoma, and Indiana were my picks, but also environmentally uh, safe states that won't have forest fires that shut down the economy for three months or pro- states that have uh, problems with, uh, uh, with water or inequality or uh, have problems with the judicial system where you cannot evict tenants and uh, they don't pay rent and police doesn't show if uh, if you need them to to come in so all of those is uh, part of the research on that and the reasons why i'm looking at um, at those markets where in indiana did you buy there is uh, i started with one place uh, as a town called anderson uh, which is about 30 minutes outside of Indianapolis. I like metro areas and suburban metro areas. So Anderson used to be an old GM town. I used to have 75,000 population. Throughout the years, they had like 52 different plants that were uh, associated with General Motors and automotive business. And since uh, automotive business collapsed in uh, Midwest and a lot of uh, factories got shut down, that town got hurt and got hit really hard. So they down right now to like 52,000 population. But uh, the decline in population stopped a few years ago and now they actually gradually start going up because a lot of houses that were abandoned there and a lot of people start moving in because now it's a suburb of Indianapolis, remember? And uh, so I bought my first building there. It's uh, in Indiana. It was It's a 13-story tower, Art Deco, built in 1926. 
one of the first tallest building in, in the state of Indiana. And it was originally built as a hotel, but then converted into apartment building. So um, it was just recently redeveloped and, um, with the tax credits from with the city. And I bought it with, from redeveloping agency. It's a gorgeous um, Art Deco building. If, uh, if you Google it, uh, The Tower in Anderson, Indiana. So that was my first acquisition. I've proven to be pretty good uh, purchase. And so I've, since then, I, I bought another complex there in Anderson and then another subdivision of 50 townhomes in Muncie, uh, which is a town that's about 45 minutes outside of Indianapolis, 20 minutes outside of uh, Anderson. Uh, it's a college town called Muncie, Indiana. So that's a project I'm repositioning right now because it's been kind of neglected for many years. So I'm, uh, I'm doing a lot of uh, remodeling there, adding value to it. So I guess, first of all, on, on the Art Deco building, the 13 story, how many units is that? Uh, it's a 40 unit residential and two commercial on the bottom. And then how do you deal with the management? Because everything I've kind of heard is that it takes, and inevitably you'll have an answer to this, but it takes, you know, a hundred units or around there to be able to have enough revenue and, you know, there are variables to this inevitably, but to have on-site staff, maintenance, leasing, et cetera. So how do you deal with the management with the 40-unit building? Well, so I, when I started with that, I had an on-site manager and she got sick really fast after after I took over. She was, she was not well before, but she got sick. And uh, I had to replace her really quick with the management company that operates in the area that comes highly recommended. Um, Middletown property management and uh, two brothers own it and they uh, are local and they can cover uh, Muncie and Anderson. So I try to have my own property managers working on my properties um, because you're kind of more in control this way because they only work for you and you can be assured that they, they concentrate on, on, on your property only. Property management inherently has a problem from my point because it's a, it's a conflict of interest for them. They need to have turnover because they can charge for new leases being signed. They, they're more interested in providing their own maintenance. But my original contract with this property management company was that uh, they only do 5% flat. They do $125 uh, for each lease uh, signed or re-signed, uh, upfront fee. And, um, they do the maintenance with their maintenance people at $40 an hour. And uh, I, don't, I don't have anybody on staff. So I don't have anybody on payroll. So there's a huge plus there. Um, so, but you do have to watch of, uh, of how that's run to make sure that, that uh, it doesn't get um, outside of the realm of, of uh, right numbers from my world. Because a lot of times... Uh, property management uh, companies, they try to bill you for things you don't need or a lot of times the stuff you could do much cheaper. But you just have to watch and you have to have conversations with them. Like any charges that over $300, they have to run by you and then you have to shop for anything. If it's a big item, you know, like it's a sewer line or if it's an elevator repair or something, you have to, you have to go and shop uh, by yourself and, and, and get a few bids. Because property management companies are not really good at uh, shopping for the best deals out there. So there are issues with that, but uh, property management companies are not the same, uh, but you have to kind of uh, work with them to get them to do what you want them to do. 
sell, especially when you're outside of the market. You know, I don't want to dwell too much, but like in a situation like that, so you're in Anderson, it's a suburb, and maybe there's the answer right there. Maybe I'm answering my own question, but I'll ask it anyway, is given that it's a small town, if for some reason the wheels fall off in this relationship with these guys for whatever reason, it's such a small town, are there even other property managers or would you just pull somebody in from Indianapolis? But even then, that's 30 minutes away. So yeah, how do you address that? Um, you know, when I had to replace my manager there, I flew in and I put an ad on Indeed and I had to do it really fast to interview people for the position. And by the time I flew in there, you know, it took me half a day to get there from Bay Area with the flight change. And by the time I got there, I had like 16 applications and all qualified people. I, I, I selected three. I had an interview with three of them. Two of them were pretty good with experience in management. They knew Upfolio, which is the CRM that I'm using. And it was, it, some of them even have a, a good experience to do some uh, handiwork. So like immediate stuff, change locks and do basics. So there's a pool of, of people already there if you need to. It's just, it, I knew that I wasn't getting in contract on two other properties fairly quick there. So I thought management, property management company would probably be fine for now. But there is a pool of people that you can train property managers for, for your need there. So I don't think it should be, it should be that problematic. I see. Those aren't necessarily other property management companies. Per no, se. there are property management companies in the area. I interviewed a couple of those as well on the phone. And so that was not a problem with them. But the problem um, could have been that uh, they all know each other. It's Yeah, you're right. It's a small town. But a lot of times what happens is they all know each other's prices. So there one says, oh, I will not do this for that. And another one, I will not do this for that. So, but that means just uh, that uh, there's always somebody who would be startup hungry enough to get in the business. You just, you just need to shop around, that, that's all. It's just my mantra. I, I make it at least, I get a three bids at least for anything. Uh, so this way I know where the market is. Listen, man, if anybody knows how to negotiate coming out of the car business, you're the guy. So how do you find these properties? You know, most of the time, the way I started with, uh, it was a different story back 10, 12 years ago when I started with the multifamily. You just go on, um, uh, at the time, to like Zillow or Zip Realty used to be. Uh, and I would just look for foreclosures because they would say just right there, foreclosure. That's how I started with that at the time. And then... I just got few brokers that, that turn out to have all the foreclosures. Banks will just have relationship with them and they'll give them all the foreclosures. And that's once you realize that those are the deal, those are the people, you make relationships with them. So that, that's how I, uh, I learned that you want to have relationships with uh, agents and brokers because people who would sell you the stuff, they would then call you on the next deal. And then when you are selling your product, you can sell it to, you can sell that and uh, they can sell it for you. So that shouldn't be, um, it shouldn't be that much of a, a secret, but I guess it's a secret in the industry. This is keep the same people and cultivate relationships. So with my last deals, I did uh, three of my last brokers did nine of my last deals. 
So just to give you an idea, one in Las Vegas, one in Oklahoma, and one in Indiana. And um, they uh, they would call me every time there's something that either came up uh, or something that just fell out of escrow. And they knew exactly who to call because they know that you can close. You know that you would uh, you would be able to uh, do the deal, find the money, and get the deal financed. So. And uh, those are the relationships that you want to uh, cultivate. So in like the case, I keep uh, referring to the deal in Indiana for some reason, which is could be talking about Oklahoma or anywhere else, but I'm just using this, I guess, as an example. I guess what it boils down to is here you and I are in the Bay Area. A half an hour from Indy just feels like it's a kind of a satellite random place to wind up. It's a random place. Yes, true. Uh, So it started with this tower building and I found it on the loop net and uh, I called the broker there, their listing agent. And um, I said, so uh, tell me about it. He said, well, it's an escrow. So there's nothing to say. I said, look, uh, do you want to write down my number? And if something happens, call me. And sure enough, you know, like a month later, he calls me and says, it uh, it fell out of escrow. Uh, Would you like to talk about it? So it took us uh, a a few months because we had to jump through the hoops to get this deal. The city wanted me to do presentations to their economic department and all the sorts of things because the TIF money was involved from previous people to reconstruct the deal. So. This broker did a lot of hand-holding with me and a lot of facilitating with the city and meetings and inspections. It took over all the inspections for me. And, you know, throughout this three months of doing this deal, I did this deal with the agency. So uh, those who don't know, that's uh, Freddie Mac. So that's a federal agency. So there's a lot of uh, involved there in terms of appraisals and uh, paperwork and due diligence and attorneys. And it's all going through uh, an attorney office in Washington that does all of that for Freddie Mac. So there's a lot of work that was done. So throughout this three months, we got to know each other really well. I flew there and uh, visited the property, did you know my walkthrough, and we talked about a lot of things. And the broker there, Aaron Kuroiva, he is a, a broker for Marcus and Millichap, really great guy. And he uh, taught me a lot of things about Anderson, about uh, Indiana. And um, after, you know, this first deal, after we closed, I said, look, this deal looks like it's it, it's working well uh, because it was under market rents and the expenses were too high. And so one thing that I did learn in car business is to cut expenses. Every time I walk into a, a a new car dealership where I was hired or which business that I was open uh, opening. It was uh, about watch not only where your income is coming from, what your expenses are. So you cut expenses and as much as you can and then automate, outsource as much as you can. And then you get uh, to reevaluate the rents and make sure that the rents are with uh, on, on on market. So as long as the as long as those two things are taken care of, your business should be humming just fine. And uh, I told him, you know, if you have anything else coming up, let's uh, let's look at more deals. And he said, yeah. So on that building, how how much did you pay for door, and how much did you have to put in? You know, so like, what were you in all in per door, and what what ultimately are you getting for rent? So I bought it at two point seven, two point seven million divided by forty two. So about comes out to about fifty five, fifty six thousand per door, something like that. Okay. Mm, 
maybe a little bit more. No, yeah, it's about sixty-five. It's about sixty-five. 65 door. Yeah, sixty-five a door. Yeah, yeah. sixty-five a door. Yeah. So, but uh, the building was completely remodeled inside and had a new roof, and they had every single unit had uh, everything new from he- from heating to kitchens and plumbing, and had uh, hallways. Everything was completely redone. I believe they put $1.3 million into renovations into the into the building. So it was turnkey, are you saying? Yeah, it's a complete turnkey deal. Ah, yeah. okay. Yeah. And so what are you getting for rent? Um, so the rents there are at around $785, $785 per month. I see. I'm imagining in my mind. So like when you first started telling the story of this town, I'm thinking to myself, well, there's got to be a tremendous amount of vacancies in that market if it was 70,000 down to 50,000. But it sounds like this is such a legacy property that it's probably attracts, it's probably occupied because it's the coolest place to live in town. That is absolutely right. It's right across the street from YMCA. It's in downtown. It's uh, right across the street from an old post office. The whole downtown is, is, is what I really love about old Americana is everything that's built in the, in the 20s and 30s. I like the Art Deco style and it's it's very cool building. If you if you Google it, you can look at the pictures. It's it's really fantastic building. So yes, the views from any anywhere higher than the fourth floor, you've got views up to you know fifty miles around, and it's just it's just a great building to be. So yeah, and because it was completely remodeled, it attracts professionals and uh, people who work in downtown, and it has ample parking for the residents there. So what was the occupancy when you bought it? It was like a 95% occupied. The downstairs, uh, all residential was all occupied uh, and a waiting list. But uh, with uh, commercial is a problem. Uh, but I think commercial is a problem everywhere. So the ground floor is, is vacant and throughout COVID has been vacant. So I just recently signed up with uh, Coldwell Banker in Indianapolis to, uh, to try to promote the, the space. So we'll see how that goes. What was the cap rate that you bought it for? It was about a seven and a half going in cap. I look at the expense reports and they, it's just, it was a little bit out of, uh, out of whack there. So, uh, there's a lot of expenses on it that, uh, that I thought I could cut, which I did. The management fees, they, they had at a 10% of gross. And um, I, I found a company, uh, as I mentioned, too, that will do it at 5%. And then the expenses, a lot of expenses. Uh, they had a property manager on site, plus they had a subsidized, apart- subsidized apartment for, for her. So that's you know another $30,000 a year that could be uh, put towards the bottom line. Uh, a lot of uh, expenses that they had there, they should have been a CapEx, which is real understandable. They should have had it below the line while remodeling it, but because it was expenses that, you know, that would take years to recoup, but they had it as a monthly expenses. So once I cleaned this all up, it proved to be closer to like a 12 and a half cap for me. So uh, it turned out to be a pretty good deal. And as rents are still rising, it's working fairly good. I did have to do a couple more things on it with the elevator and uh, boiler and stuff like that, but it's more of a CapEx long-term expenses. What do you think in 2022 your cash on cash return will be? For that particular building? Yeah. 
That particular building, I think uh, I'm going to be at around, well, so here's the thing. There was an agency loan, right? So 80% LTV and uh, higher, probably no f- any origination fees that to speak of. So figured it was a uh, 500 and 540,000 I put down on it plus, you know, plus a few thousand to for closing. So figure 550. Um, so I think this is going to be closer to a closer to a 30% cash on cash deal. Not bad at all. My goodness gracious. And, and so, first of all, just to back up a second, bear with the nonlinear approach here, but do you still have the properties that you bought in Sacramento or Las Vegas or have you exchanged out of those? No, I still have Sacramento. I still have two buildings in Sacramento, two 14 unit buildings in Sacramento. And I do have three buildings in uh, Las Vegas. One is a value add deal that I'm, I'm going through right now that needed a lot of work. I bought it exactly a year ago on, on Christmas of last year in Las Vegas. And it's a, it's a 50, uh, 50 units in downtown complex and um, needed a lot of work. I did another deal like that a year ago and uh, sold it in the spring. So I like Las Vegas and uh, I, I have three buildings there and one is a value add deal I'm doing there. And then what is generally your criteria? What, what do you ultimately say yes to versus shoot down? Well, it depends really on the deal. Uh, sometimes like a broker in, in Vegas is a young guy, but really hardworking guy. He sold me four buildings there and he sold one building for me this spring. And he helped me out with a lot of, with a lot of people there. It's a market that they did not know getting in. But um, I got into it, and uh, he introduced me to his uh, to all his contacts. And um, after about six months or so, I realized after the first building I bought from him, I realized that uh, if I have a team, if I have the people on the ground, I can buy more. And that's exactly that's exactly what happened. I bought three more buildings there. So to answer your question, what criteria I look at? If it's a, it's, a, it's a building that's mismanaged and the rents are under market, I need to see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. So I have to see what, I have to imagine what it would be once I'm done, once once I clean it up and once I, what's the exit. So it's like if any anybody who is, you have to put your venture capitalist hat on and say, okay, if I do, if I invest in this startup, I do this, 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 and that, and market does this, this, and that. What's the best case scenario? What's my exit and when? So give you an example, a building that I bought there, uh, Fremont Palms, and uh, that was about, uh, well, it's going to be like three years ago now, but close to three years ago there. Uh, so it was, a, it was a 52 unit building and um, it was very rough shape. The previous owner one owner before me was murdered on the premises by his maintenance man so it was taken over by a bank sold it to somebody else and that somebody else just stuffed it with uh, anybody who had a pulse just so he can resell it and the buildings had a lot of issues uh leaks and plumbing issues electrical issues and uh the 
type of tenants that were in the property. It was it was a big issue. But I don't afraid those those things because you know somebody else's problems. It's it's my it's what I do, right? So that's how you add value. If you ask anybody, do you want a problem? And <laughs> when it's trying to buy an investment, everybody will run away, right? But uh, if you ask me if you want a problem, depending on the problem, but I would say probably yes, because if I can solve the problem, as long as I'm not delusional there, but uh, sometimes people have to tell me that I'm delusional. But uh, if I'm not delusional, I can solve the problem. I like the problem because that's where the profit is. So that building I end up buying and just, uh, I remember this clearly because it's, uh, it's easy to remember. Uh, 52 units in 52 weeks, we had 52 evictions. Okay. Just wow. to give you an idea. Damn, <laughs> so man. One, so we, we basically changed uh, the whole building in one year and we had to have on average one eviction per week. So we had to put uh, new lights all inside and outside of the complex for security. We had to have... Um, Security cameras put in. We had to evict a couple of drug dealers who had their own security uh, on premises with the lights and, and, you know, armored doors and all stuff like that. There's a, a prostitution ring that was run out of there. It was quite a, a challenging uh, deal. And we had to remodel uh, all of it, paint it and, you know, to make it, uh, make it really nice and put good tenants in there, good paying tenants there. So, and once we did that, this, this, you know, I, I bought that building for, uh, I, I think it's a 3.2 million and, uh, two years prior. And so this fall we, we sold it for uh, 6.3 million. Well, you so, deserve it, man, for, for being willing to do what you did. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's a, it was a, it was a lot of work, but it was all worth it because the, the profits from this deal went into 1031 into a, a two larger deals in Oklahoma. Do you syndicate? How do you deal with capital raise? No, I don't syndicate. Okay. So you're just doing this by yourself or do you have yeah. friends and family or? Um, mainly by myself. Very interesting. In your view of multifamily, one can have a sense whether that's, this is correct or not. One could have a sense that it's been so frothy uh, and there's been so much money chasing it for the last five, 10 years, what have you, that the story is kind of, it's kind of coming to a close. And I guess what's your view of that in, again, without answering my own question, which I have a tendency of doing, or do you just view it as like, look, you're doing such heavy value add one-offish kind of deals that you're not really in the mainstream of off-the-shelf kind of deals? Well, no. Um, just to clarify, now I, I try to diversify it in two types of deals. One is the value adds, and I always have a couple of them going because that's how you grow your cash really fast, much faster than, than the normal. And, but the other one is uh, I invest in uh, brand new properties like Oklahoma. In Oklahoma, I, I bought three uh, properties, three subdivisions that were built in the last year. Some of them were just finished. So the, uh, I closed on them in the last few months and the uh, COs, the, the certificate of occupancies were just issued. So those are brand new properties and uh, they don't need any value add. So it's a different story, but it's a different clientele. It's a different market and obviously different cap. But my view to answer your question where this multifamily business is going, my view is this. 
just according to Freddie Mac, they uh, tend to underestimate. Government always tend to un underestimate because it's all politics. We have a 6.8 million units shortage. Okay, 6.8 million doors shortage of housing in the United States, right? Does that include single family or? That includes single family, but uh, it's all tied. It's, it's all tied together in the business. Because if, if people cannot buy houses, they will have to rent them. If they can buy a home, they'll have to rent town home or they have to move somewhere. So, and overall, we've got a shortage of housing and there's no way around it. There's no affordable housing, period, because nobody builds affordable housing anymore, right? So if you don't build affordable housing to begin with, there's going to be always a shortage of, of affordable housing because nationally, it's not a uh, strategy that the United States government is taking on like they did after World War II when they realized that there was a shortage of housing and uh, HUD was giving away grants, right, to build housing for GIs and uh, new families that were starting up uh, after GIs were coming back from the war. Like if you remember half of uh, Brooklyn, half of New York, Long Island was built uh, on grants from, from HUD. Donald Trump's father started that way, remember? They were just giving money to developers to build affordable housing. Okay? If you've got land and you've got a construction company, you've got experience, they were giving you money to build. And that's what needs to happen now. Without this, this is we're not going to outsmart ourselves by outregulating housing. You cannot outregulate it. So you just there's, the only way you can do that is to build it and build affordable housing. But the government is not looking even in this direction. So unless this happens, and I don't see that happening anytime soon, we're going to have shortage of, of housing. So if that's the case, then multifamily is going to be a profitable business in states that try not to regulate it as much. And they are the ones who will have more growth because they don't have not in my backyard laws. They don't have uh, laws that uh, prohibit a building or converting buildings uh, into multifamily, like California does, for example, right? So you will always have opportunities in that segment. Another thing also, inflation. You have to understand that we're going right now through a very high inflationary period, and it's not going to stop anytime soon for uh, simple reasons that are uh, disruption in supply chains and uh, a labor shortage. So labor is going up and that's going to create even higher inflation. So with that in mind, rents will go up. And as rents go up, that means your capitalizations of your buildings will still going to be going up. And as long as the capitalization of the building is going up, the, the cap rates will be uh, staying with that. So um, I think there's a lot of room to grow. And I think because there is a, a shortage, and it's all about supply and demand, right, Roger? As long as there is a shortage of housing, there's always going to be opportunities in, in, in multifamily. You've done some things. You're clearly really, really smart. You're opportunistic and you're a good operator. You understand how to manage a P&L, probably starting from your background in the auto business. I mean, it's very, very impressive. You know, so you've had some great successes. What would you say you've, your mistakes you've made that you've really learned from? Huh. Mistakes. Well, the biggest mistake I think is uh, thinking that you can do it all. 
So once you realize that there are a lot of things that you're not good at and you should really outsource them and let somebody else handle them, that's probably for the best. And so you have to let your ego rest a little bit and let it go and give those tasks to somebody else. Like I'm, I'm horrible with paperwork. I'm horrible with, uh, with just handling a lot of the minutiae details of paperwork and following on that. So I would rather outsource it now before I would do it and it would bite me. So it's, uh, that's one of those things. Another mistake is a lot of times I would make a deal based on one assumptions. And then luckily, you know, again, rising, rising tide lifts all the boats. I was lucky enough that a lot of times the rents were rising faster that, uh, that I could, uh, that I could imagine. So the realization rate of the property would, would go up. But some deals that, that I made, looking back, I, I would say was they were pretty risky. You think that you, you can outsmart the market, but a lot of times you can't. i give you an example. I bought a property in, in Vallejo. It was an old church. I bought it from a, a Christian credit union. The pastor that, uh, that, that lived and worked there didn't pay the mortgage for years and they foreclosed on him so they evicted him and the church was empty and it was full of uh full of drug addicts and uh there was uh, a lot of homeless people living there and the city tried to clean it up and they couldn't so i bought it for a you know a nominal amount of money very very little i thought okay so i'm just gonna go and do what i do i i buy it i clean it up i rent it out and it would be great. I go to the mayor and the mayor tells me, oh yeah, absolutely. He's about to run for re-election. And uh, he's oh, absolutely, yeah, what do you want to do there? I said, I, let's, I, I want to do artist studios. And he says, oh great, it'll be great. I said, so this is what I want. I want downtown to be full of artists and artist studios. And I'm like, okay, fabulous. So I draw the plans. I get to go. Everybody is really happy about this. And then I go with those plans to the building department and the building department city of Valle is right, right next door, like five yards away from a mayor's office. And the building uh, official tells me, no, you can't do that. I said, why not? Well, because there's going to be a change in parking. There's going to be change in uh, ADA compliance and um, you have to redraw it. So after a while, after me redrawing the plans and this and that and and uh, they said, no, you need to put an elevator. It's a two-story building. They need to put an yeah. elevator there. And I said, but there's an exemption. And in in if its cost is, is more than 15% to make it in the ADA compliant, the cost is more than 15%. You don't need to do this. And he says, yeah, but I'm not going to grant this ex- exemption. I said, why not? Because it puts us at risk as a, as a city. We could be sued. So, yes, you could, but I'm not going to do that. And I couldn't do what I, what I wanted to do in that building. Luckily, after a while, I rented the, the space that the pastor used to use. I remodeled it and, and rented it out. And it kept me afloat for, you know, while I was going through all of the motions there. You know, I, I said, okay, I'll convert it into re- residential. And the city said, no, because you'll need to put a sprinkler system in there. And that's $200,000. And then you have to put, you know, you have to pay, obviously, the conversion fees. Uh, that's uh, $55,000 per door. And then I'm like, that doesn't make any commercial, any financial sense. Like, don't you want to have downtown to be thriving? Like every single downtown in America right now is going down. I don't know if you noticed. Yeah, Half yeah. of the buildings are boarded up. And, and the city of Vallejo, 70% of the downtown, old downtown 
is uh, used for not what they were supposed to be, is being used not for what it was built for. And you have street walkers and drug addicts on downtown. And, you know, you have uh, a drive-by shootings all the time. And the city doesn't want anything to do about it. They said they do. But when it comes to actually doing something about it, they don't. So I went back and forth with them for two years and I couldn't change anything. Uh, Mayor says all the right things. Building department says all the right things from a legal style point of view. But I learned a lot. I learned that affordable housing will need to be uh, spearheaded from the head, from the federal government down. Because on the ground, there are so many laws that prohibits from conversion of buildings that are not used uh, for, for multifamily or building them from ground up. It's just, it's cost prohibitive. All the code enforcement and fire laws and a fire code and ADA codes and not in my backyard uh, laws and, and everything. I tried putting a, uh, a homeless outreach uh, on, on that building and that old church and the nonprofit that rented from me they were really happy to to have that. They wanted to have like a soup kitchen there and a uh, uh, washer and dryer and to do clothes for homeless people, which could be a great deal, right? Because there's a lot of homeless people around there. But for some reason, people in the neighborhood said no to that. They didn't want people congregating there, which, you know, used to be a, a church. And uh, they came to the city and said, you cannot do that, even that. And because of the laws of not in my backyard, I couldn't even do any of that. After a while, I'm like, I learned a lot of lessons, what not to do. This is one of them. <laughs> so I would, <laughs> I, would, I would rather do deals outside of California when it's not as litigious, first of all, and, the, and all the laws are for people to promote business, not to kill business. So that was, that was probably the biggest mistake. I got it. So we're wrapping up here. Do you have any, well, if you have any interest in having anybody contact you, you're not, you're not syndicating, you're, you don't need to raise that kind of money. But uh, if anybody were to want to contact you, or if you were to want that, you just say, hey, no interest or if so, hey, yeah, go to my LinkedIn or whatever you want to do, however you want to wind it up. Yeah, Roger. So uh, one thing that uh, we talked about, me and you before, is that I just started a, a, a new venture called a Ready Land Go, uh, readylandgo.com. That's an um, aggregator for commercial lending. So like, for example, if you want to buy an apartment building or if you need to refinance a building, a property that you already have, um, it's storage or if it's a hotel, doesn't matter. You just go to the site and, and my aggregator site will uh, give you the best choices for financing options because there are so many lenders out there and you don't know which lender is right for you. So Ready Lend Go is, is the product uh, that... Um, that I'm developing right now. So you can email me there or you can find me uh, on LinkedIn. I'm, I, it's the only uh, social media that I use. So uh, you can connect or uh, email me there. You know, and shame on me. I should ask questions about Ready, Lend, Go. I didn't. I owe you an apology. I'll buy you lunch. And uh, no uh, yeah, <laughs> so it's been a really, really, really good interview. I, I, I enjoyed it immensely. And what a great story. So, Arthur, uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Roger. I'll talk to Ma you soon. Thank you for having me. You got it. <laughs>